everyone, and welcome to Rising Stars. I'm Miriam Knight, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Freddie Silva. For over a decade, Freddie has been a best-selling author and independent researcher of ancient systems of knowledge, alternative history, and earth mysteries. He has published five books, including Secrets in the Field, The Science and Mysticism of Crop Circles, and First Templar Nation, How the Knights Templar Created Europe's First Nation State. I actually interviewed him about that last book, and it's fascinating, so listen to that interview too. He's also an international keynote speaker, documentary filmmaker, magazine contributor, and conducts tours to sacred sites in Britain, France, Malta, Peru, Yucatan, and Egypt. Today we're going to talk about his latest book, The Lost Art of Resurrection, Initiation, Secret Chambers, and the Quest for the Other World. So welcome, Freddie. Hello, Miriam. Good to be back. (laughs) Good to have you back. Now, resurrection is generally considered something you need to die for first. (laughs) Tell me about living (laughs) resurrection. Well, you know, uh, I mean, uh, I should sort of phrase that uh, I was raised as a as a Catholic, and I've recovered since, um, obviously, uh, from the books I write. And uh, one of the things that I learned uh, pretty early on is that uh, if I'm going to follow something, uh, regardless whether it's a religion or an idea, uh, I like to do it for the right reasons, and I like to sort of pose a question as to what is it about the idea that I'm being given? Is it correct? Uh, Do the facts stack up? And um, uh, in the last book that I was writing about the Templars, I kept coming across this concept of uh, raising the dead and living resurrection. And it was something that the inner brotherhood was practicing as a kind of a mystical experience, a kind of an initiation. And I decided to take the idea a little bit further to see where where this went and where did it come from. And uh, my God, I mean, our concept in uh, the Western world of uh, resurrection is being solely experienced by one guy who is nailed to a cross and gets up three days later is completely fictitious. Um, in fact, it's so old that by the time Jesus comes around, and he was a real guy, by the way, um, not to sort of downplay the whole thing. He was a very important initiate, but he was a long. Uh, he was part of a long line of tradition of people who had uh, um, figuratively uh, been buried and then risen from the dead. The whole thing was a metaphor, and I've traced the whole story of initiation back to at least 3,000 years in China. So again, the Chinese can claim to have a first in resurrection as well. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it was actually sort of Mongolia, it wasn't really China, but uh, in Mongolia there was a, a guy called Isu who in about 3000 BC gets uh, nailed to a, uh, a figuratively nailed to a cross on the um, winter solstice, uh, goes into the other world, comes back three days later and he's risen from the dead. And uh, there are so many people around the world, even in Native America, in Persia, uh, in Polynesia, as I'm just discovering, uh, who also uh, followed that similar process. And it was really to do with one of the most mystical um, initiation practices that was reserved for a few people who were you know, lucky and also determined enough to go through uh, with this experience, uh, which when they came back from the other side, they went about living their daily lives and uh, as if they basically had experienced a kind of a, an awakening and uh, they became extraordinarily spiritual people. So uh, t- it turns out that the whole idea of uh, resurrection or the living resurrection is much more important and much more personal than we've actually been led to believe. Well, certainly from your description of the Egyptian practices, 
you got the impression that it was almost required of anyone aspiring either to pharaohhood or even the priesthood. Oh, very much so. And it was open to anybody, including women. And um, that's what was really surprising, that uh, uh, sects in the Middle East, uh, in Palestine, and in the Mediterranean, were actually indoctrinating women as well. And in fact, the women, uh, going back to Persia, were actually fundamental to the uh, the whole initiation process because they were actually the uh, people who actually looked after the initiate during their sojourn. Um, actually, it was a near-death experience. It was an induced near-death experience, which sounds quite harrowing, really, when you think about it. Uh, but they did it. Uh, and um, the whole idea was that um, you uh, volunteered to have this out-of-body uh, out experience, go travel in the other world, and um, really differentiate yourself from what shamans were doing, which is sort of take in uh, narcotics and uh, to influence what you were seeing on the other side. They actually did it very, very differently. Um, they actually had a, a real experience as though you and I are here in this world. They were having exactly the same uh, experience walking about in the other world and coming back to tell about it. So it was uh, something that uh, people actually aspire to, and uh, anyone that was curious uh, was allowed into the um, in, into these mystery schools. They were kept on their observation for about a year. And if they were deemed to be responsible people uh, who would keep certain secrets, uh, because you didn't want just you know every Tom, Dick, and Harry to go around experiencing this, there was uh, a, a natural process you had to go through because it was quite dangerous. Uh, there were certain uh, limits of uh, things that could be done and achieved. So they wanted to make sure that only people who were specifically trained in this art would actually go through with it. And uh, three years later, if you had gone through all the procedures, uh, you would, as a final stage of initiation, be placed in a uh, sarcophagus or a kind of a bathtub, as the Greeks called it, uh, or a wooden box. Uh, in the Polynesian islands, you'd even be buried alive with a tube sticking out of the earth. Uh, but three days later, uh, you would come back and uh, you'd be risen and uh, you'd look around you and you'd say, wow, there's much more to life than just um, an ordinary living where you are born, you suffer, and then you die. There's something much, much greater. And uh, you can tell from the uh, accounts of these people uh, who they didn't reveal that much, but what they did reveal was enough to show that the experience was literally worth dying for, uh, if you pardon the pun. <laughs> I really do believe that pun is the highest form of humor, not the lowest. Uh, <laughs> actually, the Egyptians invented the pun. They uh, didn't take words very seriously. They felt that words were actually a, a poor description of reality. Mm -hmm. So in order to make sure that people didn't take themselves too seriously when they were making out words, they invented the pun. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? <laughs> you look at these serious guys sideways on the hieroglyphs. Anyway... Um, I, I'm kind of curious because the literature of near-death experiences has been flooding out in recent years. So the reports or the, the, the process that you could glean from your studies, does it follow in any respect um, the results that, uh, you know, like uh, uh, Moody and, and co., are and Eben Alexander and Anina Morjani are experiencing when they report their own near-death experiences. 
They're very similar. In fact, I was in uh, Montreal giving a presentation last year, and Susan Barouche, who's a, an MD who's published uh, work on near-death experiences, it's interesting that we're, our talks follow each other, and I had no idea about her work, or, and she had no idea about mine, but it's funny how we're both talking about exactly the same thing, uh, one from a more mystical part of view, point of view, and hers coming from a strictly medical uh, and imperative point of view. And we were amazed that people 5,000 years ago were experiencing the same thing. Um, the big difference was that um, these, things, uh, these experiences were voluntary near-death experiences, and they were induced, uh, whereas most of the modern-day exercises are not induced. They are actually uh, either shamanic, uh, which is very different. It's related, but it's very, very different because you are, to a certain degree, out of control. Um, or they are actually uh, involuntary near-death experiences where you are, you know, for example, you've taken an overdose, you, you're in a coma, and you travel about the other world and you come back. Um, these uh, experiences that the, uh, the Greeks, the Egyptians, and so forth were this, describing, and this, uh, the accounts that do survive, because they were heavily edited and also um, destroyed by the church for obvious reasons, uh, because obviously if this experience could be done by anybody, they would lose their job. They wanted to make sure this information never got out. But people like Plato <laughs> wrote about It sounds like the pharmaceutical companies today. Uh, it, it, nothing changes. It's like different folks, same strokes, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, the, the, the people like Plato and Pythagoras, um, who actually did go for these experiences, uh, they were forbidden by law to specifically describe it, so they wrote it about it in a, um, using fictional characters to get around the problem. And it was quite clear that they were in total control so, uh, for example, uh, you could be sitting at your desk right now looking out of the window as I am at the beautiful blue water of the Atlantic, uh, smelling the flowers. You'd have exactly the same experience on the other side. Uh, you'd be completely conscious, totally aware. And this is where the Egyptian texts come in very useful because there are uh, several chambers that were found under pyramids and one uh, unusual chamber, to say the least, in the Valley of the Kings where no one was actually buried in it, which is kind of weird. Um, the, the actual text written on the walls actually describe in absurd detail every single hour uh, of the dark night of the soul where you have to remember certain chants and incantations to get you through safely to the other world and back. And it was this uh, technique where you, your soul, uh, I'm not talking about the brain here, I'm talking about the actual oversoul of the individual, is in total conscious control of its movements out of body. So if you compare that to, say, when you're in a dream state during REM sleep, you, can, you know that you have no control over your REM sleep. I mean, you just go wherever your soul goes. You meet unusual people. You're in interesting places that you've never seen before. Uh, and yet they're, they're profoundly real but yet you have no control. These people had complete control of where they were going. They knew how to come back at um, an appointed time, uh, much like the, um, uh, the city of the, uh, the Indian practitioners in India. Uh, they have complete control of, of the out-of-body state where they can actually go into a comatose state for a year and they'll give you the exact minute when to come back and dig your body out of this, out of this sarcophagus and they'll be perfectly alive. And that was the big difference, uh, the fact that uh, all this was done with total control. Wow. Well, we'll pick this up after the break. I'm speaking with Freddie Silva about the lost art of resurrection. Freddie, tell me, do you have a website? Oh, yes, I have several, but the main one is uh, invisibletemple.com. 
you really have become probably one of the world's experts on the whole idea of temples and the use of temples. It's quite fascinating uh, to read some of your quotes about the purpose of temples. Um, share that with us. <laughs> it's um, it actually comes from a, a lot of experience. I mean, uh, we sort of start off our life as tourists, and we go around to, you know, the pyramids and Stonehenge and places like that. And uh, you know, we look at the stones, we appreciate the uh, the markings, the uh, the painting, uh, and the the way that the whole thing has so been so beautifully constructed. But uh, once you get past that, and you start actually having this intimate relationship with these sites, uh, they talk back to you. And it was a huge surprise to find that I would go walk about in these sites. And, and I was very spoiled uh, for a part of my life. I mean, I lived in between uh, Avery and Stonehenge in England. So every afternoon I'd take a sandwich and work out which one to go to. And, uh, that and then explains come back and write something. about it. Yes, it's uh, one of the perks of, uh, of my job. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, after a while I began to realize that, you know, I'm getting so much information at these sites. It's as though someone's actually talking into my ear and then I make notes. Uh, and it's a very loud voice. And you sort of go back and research it and you find out, yes, the information is all there. And um, I began to take this a stage further because what I try to do is not just talk about things from a mystical point of view. I like to back it up with uh, hard science. I try to bridge the br uh, link a bridge between the two worlds so that uh, should you ever go into a, a formal dinner conversation and people ask you about temples, well, you can at least you can sort of not see them running away from the table and you'll be invited back when you start giving them hard <laughs> science as to why you call these things living organisms because that's what I do. Uh, uh, for me, a temple is a living, breathing organism. And um, it surprised me uh, thousands of years ago that the priests used to go around to each room of the Egyptian temples and awaken each room as though they're um, bringing a, a sleeping person out of a deep sleep. And I wondered, is it really true? Because so many of these myths incorporate such a wonderful truth, but obviously it's written from their point of view and it makes no sense to us. So I... I began to look into the um, uh, electromagnetic um, side of things and found out that, yes, uh, virtually every temple on the face of the earth, without exception, uh, including the Gothic uh, cathedrals in Europe, which are built over existing uh, temples, uh, all of them uh, are basically um, breathing all day uh, long. And that is that the electromagnetic signature of these temples uh, re um, regenerates itself roughly every 18 minutes. And uh, they emit these ripples, which are measurable. Uh, they all lie at the crossroads of the Earth's tulare currents, uh, what some people call energy lines or the Earth currents. Um, so all of these things have a profound effect on the human body because we're made up of exactly the same stuff. Uh, and there's the rub, because the temples, uh, from whether you're in Yucatan or in India and Egypt, they'll always talk about how they were built uh, to transform an ordinary person into a god, into a bright star. And the idea is that when you walk into these temples, uh, you become a mirror of the temple because the temple is also a mirror of the perfection of the cosmos. So the idea was that um, our predecessors went to a lot of trouble to build these enormous sites in order to make sure that they would survive into a time such as today where we, we had lost the plot. And, and we really have, as a society, we have lost the plot. Uh, we are so um, out of touch with uh, reality, with the natural world, that we need a place to go to remind ourselves of the big connection. And it humbles us. And I can't tell you how many times I've done this and how much I've written about it, and it still surprises me when I visit these sites. Uh, in fact, I'm about to take a group to Peru in a couple of months. Can't wait for that one. 
Uh, and uh, we go to these places, and you come back and you're different. You, are, you really do feel like you're a god. And I'm not talking about your ego getting bigger. I'm talking about you feeling as though you've come here to do something much more than you thought. Uh, you do feel much more connected to the way of nature. You become much more sensitive, intuitive, and even psychic in some cases. So the, the temples are, are built in, a, in such a way that they do allow you to become much better uh, than you thought you were, much more connected to the bigger picture. Uh, and when that happens, your life changes totally. So it's a bit like having an out-of-body experience. And uh, so not surprisingly, there's, the, um, there's also the overlay here where the t some of the temples were actually also used for the initiation ceremonies uh, of travel to the other world. So not, they don't only fulfill um, a function of enlightening you as a person and uh, making you into a god, but they also serve to take you into another level of reality just to show you that uh, you are part of a much, much bigger picture. And what you do down here, all your actions, all your thoughts, uh, they reverberate into infinity. So it makes you much more responsible as a human being and certainly makes you feel alive. You described an interesting experiment done by uh, members of the Princeton group at sacred sites. Do you want to share that with us? Oh, that's an incredible story. Um, Princeton, uh, up until about 10 years ago, I think the, uh, this specific group, the splinter group, has now closed. And I'm not sure whether it's done so because of lack of funding or because they just basically all died of old age. I mean, they have been going for quite some time. <laughs> uh, Robert Young, who was the leading scientist, and his uh, fellow members, they started something called PEAR which is the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Department. And uh, they basically were doing uh, essentially what I've been doing, which is to blur that line between science and mysticism. And some of the experiments, uh, most of which are peer-reviewed and which I believe are still found online, uh, are extraordinary. Uh, and it's mostly to do with the inclusion of consciousness and how consciousness uh, can be measured and how it also interacts with the field of, uh, of consciousness around the Earth itself and possibly even beyond. And some of the experiments were extraordinary. Uh, there was one where they actually uh, took a piece of quartz, they put it into a vacuum, threw sound at it, and before you know it, the rock levitates. Uh, we've been wondering how they moved megaliths for years, and they finally cracked it. Uh, but some of the most extraordinary experiences were really to do with how they found a way to measure consciousness. Uh, so they would develop a machine, a kind of computer, and they were able to actually take this to specific sites and find out if the site was special, if it was sacred because of a certain numinous quality or because uh, people who went there to meditate and pray made it so. Uh, or because, uh, or maybe because it was the inclusion of both, uh, where people went to a place that was already energetically different, plus the uh, uh, use of prayer, uh, really made it very, very different than temporal space. And uh, they did many experiments uh, here in America. They went to um, Devil's Tower in Wyoming, uh, and I can guarantee you it's not called Devil's Tower by the, uh, the Native Americans. Um, <laughs> they also went to, uh, you know, car parks just to sort of uh, act as a, um, uh, a test to show that you can, you know, do a control sample to show that, yes, in a car park, if you meditate in a car park, you're not really going to have any measurable effects on the spirit of place. But when they went to Egypt and took these machines with them, they found that the, um, uh, the temples just by themselves were measuring uh, effects as high as a meditating group. So the temple itself is alive, 
But they were uh, amazed to find that when people connected with the temple and did their meditation in the temple, uh, then the two go hand in hand. The inner temple and the outer temple come together, and they really just uh, drove the um, characteristics of the machine off the scale. So again, we are again approaching that milestone in our uh, scientific technological background here on Earth where we're finally catching up with what the ancients knew. You had a mind-blowing experience in the, the great uh, Pyramid of Giza. Tell us about it. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've had a few in my lifetime. <laughs> you know, it's funny because uh, usually uh, you sort of go to these places and you expect something to happen and nothing ever does. And uh, I... I'm actually very fortunate in the sense that I tend not to know what I'm doing when I do things. And it's actually really helped me because I, I take me into these places no idea of um, what's going to happen. I, I, I'm not expecting anything to happen. I'm just going like a child, uh, like a piece of, uh, of blotting paper and expecting whatever happens to happen. If not, that's fine too. Uh, the, the spirit of the place is fine. Uh, but on this particular occasion, there was uh, a group that I work with in England, a channeling group, and we decided to go and uh, you know, clean up some of the damage that uh, people have left behind at these temples. Uh, and I'm talking about spiritual damage, because these, right. these places remember everything. Uh, they, the, the, the way that they're built, the, the type of stone, everything, they remember everything. So if you do silly things in the Great Pyramid, it will remember it. So someone has to clean it up. So we went there. Um, there were six of us that managed to go into the actual king's chamber that day. And if you've ever been there, you know how noisy it is. The place is so acoustically tuned that you can drop a pin and uh, it'll be like listening to Black Sabbath. It's so loud in there. And uh, we weren't able to get special access. Uh, we thought, well, how are we going to do our work quietly with tourists running around? Well, no sooner we said that, the entire building was vacated. Um, two of the women who were with us, they didn't feel at ease in the king's chamber, so they left. And that's fine because the pyramid is built, the big pyramid is built to a certain frequency, which is more of the masculine energy. The next one uh, is actually more of a female energy, in case anyone's concerned. There is a pyramid for everybody. So the four guys are in there, <laughs> four he-men are in there, the lights go out, which is very rare in the Great Pyramid, we're in total darkness, and uh, we decided to do a tone uh, in the limited time we had in there, and honor the spirit of place, and uh, do what we've been instructed to do. And uh, lo and behold, uh, as um, uh, God is my witness, these people came out of the rocks, and remember, we're in total, we're in total darkness, you can't see anything, it's blacker than a blackest coal cellar, and I'm seeing these what look like 30, 33 people coming out of the stones, surrounding us in a circle, dressed in the most beautiful sort of satin, um, very, very tall as well, and I just remember opening my eyes, and I'm seeing them, and they're sort of bowing, and I'm bowing back, and we're all toning, and I thought, the only thing that kept going from my head is, I hope these other three guys can see this, because I think I've gone mad. And we kept doing this. Uh, they disappeared. Uh, we took turns going into the sarcophagus uh, when no one was buried, of course. Uh, and that was part of a, the living resurrection tradition was carried out in there. And um, 20 minutes later, uh, a very angry Arab person can be heard shouting from below. And I thought, okay, we've obviously overstated our welcome. Let's go down. <laughs> and we left, and we were very dazed. We came out of there, and the rest of the group that hadn't managed to get in we were very excited to find out what happened? What did we do in there? And uh, 
uh, none of us could talk. I mean, we're completely speechless. And there's four guys. And of course, being guys, none of us wants to say anything. And I looked at <laughs> one of them and I first. said, all right, yeah, exactly. I'll go first. Did you see what I saw in there? And the next guy repeated exactly what I had seen. And we all had had exactly the same experience. And the, the best part is that the, um, the rest of the group who were renowned channelers, they actually had tapped, tuned into the room to find out what we were up to. And they described exactly what we had seen. And I hadn't even told them anything. Uh, so you have here a lot of um, validation going on here. And it happens all the time, this magic happens all the time to anyone who is in tune with these sacred sites. Uh, they will interact with you, they will take you to another level of reality, and they'll make your reality that much more special. Incredible magic indeed. Well, stay with us. We'll be right back speaking with Freddie Silva about the lost art of resurrection, initiation, secret chambers, and the quest for the other world. Be right back. Freddie, one of the most heart breaking tragedies of history, in my view, was the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria. Now, why did early Christianity feel that it needed to absolutely obliterate the, 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 the human legacy of all those that millennia? Oh, actually, it uh, goes back to the whole foundation of the church. And um, I mean, in fact, I was actually curious about this myself, where uh, there was a certain point in history where um, Gnostic Christianity could so easily have actually ruled the day, uh, whereas we've actually ended up with fundamentalist uh, Christianity, which is not the same thing that Jesus was teaching at all. And uh, if you look at the, um, the banned Gospels, uh, and that should give you a good clue, the banned Gospels, um, if you read the Gospels of Thomas uh, and also specifically of Philip, uh, you begin to realize what the big um, uh, chasm was about. And it was that the Gnostic Christians, who really were following the uh, ideas that Jesus was laying down, and Jesus, of course, and John the Baptist were initiates of the living resurrection, um, they were essentially saying that uh, God is an inner experience. Uh, the fundamentalists, uh, who are neither very fun, and they're very mental, they are claiming the exact opposite, that God is an external experience. And that's how the church basically put its foundation. So everything that uh, the original um, sect of the, uh, the, the Nazarenes were saying, uh, and uh, it's important here to also to, I'm going to try and sort of paraphrase this because it's a long story, um, it's important to understand that uh, there was no such thing as Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Nazareth of the day did not exist in his time, but a Nazari or a Naziru was a term, it was a title given to people who actually uh, were high priests who, who uh, had gone through the initiation of living resurrection and they were uh, the only people who were allowed to administer it to others. So Jesus, John the Baptist and company were part of a, an actual sect who were basically following a very ancient tradition of living resurrection. Um, when, um, he, uh, when Jesus goes AWOL uh, and basically disappears to, well, this is a point of contention. We don't know whether he disappeared off to India, uh, whether he just disappeared to the uh, uh, Arabian Peninsula. We certainly know that Mary Magdalene, uh, who was a high priestess in uh, his position, she obviously went to France and that is well uh, um, documented. Uh, at this point, we have a bit of a problem because the Roman Empire has collapsed. And uh, as always happens in a vacuum, 
power starts to want to take over. So you have all of these uh, millions of people in Europe and the Mediterranean who need guidance, specifically spiritual guidance. And that's where you get the bishops realizing this is a great opportunity to invent a new religion. And they began to systematically remove all the esoteric traditions that Jesus was talking about, and um, also removing all the connections that existed to uh, earlier resurrected God-men. Uh, and they eventually forced Constantine, the emperor, to formalize uh, Catholicism. Uh, Constantine was essentially a, um, a follower of Mithras, who was a very old tradition of living resurrection. Same thing, uh, a, guy, a, a god-man who's a shepherd who goes into a mountain, into a cave, and the winter solstice gets up three days later, raised from the dead. Um, essentially, Constantine just took out the word Mithra and put in Jesus, and lo and behold, you have a, have a new tradition. The problem was that in order to maintain this uh, tradition and the bunch of lies that went with it, the uh, priesthood that were now founding uh, Catholicism had to eradicate all its connections to the past. Because if you could f figure out where they had borrowed the ideas and yet uh, turn them into a, uh, a centralized priesthood, uh, it could be bad news. And it, there was one time where they nearly failed in their attempt to take over. Uh, and that's when the whole burning of the, uh, the books started. Uh, they wanted to make sure that mm -hmm. every single available manuscript that related uh, the true origins of Christianity going back 3,000 years was were obliterated. So the final conflict really came down to uh, Alexandria, where all the remaining uh, library, uh, all, all the libraries of the Middle East were suddenly uh, put in one location, which, when you think about it, in hindsight, was really a bad idea. You know, you never put all your money in the same <laughs> bank account. Uh, so, but, you know, that's history. Um, and so that's what happened. They basically wanted to make sure that every single uh, I, um, manuscript that was dealing with the esoteric uh, self-empowerment of the individual was removed. Uh, it just happened that they also burned 30,000 other volumes to go with it uh, by basically inciting a mob. And it's always uh, people who really have little understanding of the bigger picture that are in, uh, incited by a select few to go and make trouble on their behalf. And the same as happens throughout history, uh, as, as you've noticed, but that's the story of the earth. So from that point on, uh, Catholicism wins and Christianity loses, and the two are not the same. And, uh, and this is not me on my soapbox. This is, uh, these are facts that can be validated by Scripture and by the actual evidence that's available. And uh, one of my heroes, uh, the late Michael Bajant, also followed uh, in this uh, uh, idea, and he also came to exactly the same conclusion. So uh, I'm not the only person that's saying this by any means, and not certainly not the last. So it's important to realize that this whole concept of the living resurrection as the highest form of initiation was important uh, because it was self-empowering. And you, in a formalized, centralized religion system, you can't have that because it puts a lot of people out of work. And uh, so that's why I think it's important to talk about it now because I think we're at a point where, and specifically now with a, uh, a new pope in Rome who's, uh, in my opinion, is a very open person. I actually like what he's done so far. Uh, I'm actually going to have to actually step back and stop criticizing the church because I, I believe that he actually, his heart is in the right place and he's actually doing some extraordinary things. Uh, so, you know, let's give uh, things time and see where they go. But the whole concept of self-empowerment uh, is coming back and more people are now shunning formalized religion for uh, retreats, for personal introspection. And that's exactly what they were teaching thousands of years ago. It's about you discovering yourself and discovering the position of your soul 
relative to your body and its position uh, within the bigger scheme of things. And that's why they, you know, uh, took three years out of your life to say, hey, you know, come and look at uh, how you really can have a, a conscious control of your manifestation process by learning these things, these techniques uh, that have been shared around the world in these secret initiations. So that's why it was very important and why it was also taken out of commission. Well, the ironies in all of this are just <clears throat> over the top. But oh, believe it's me. Interesting. It's, a big, it's a big cosmic joke. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why we're here. <laughs> but it's an interesting time to be here because on the one hand, we are distancing ourselves from the edifices, from the temples, from the, the, the places that anchor this spiritual energy but on the other hand we're looking for it more and more inside people are going on uh, shamanic journeys they're taking interesting herbal substances to try and <laughs> recapture this sense of connection to the mystery it, it seems to be much more within our grasp than it was in the past yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the big things that you taught in uh, mystery schools is that uh, the Earth has um, certain timings. Everything is done for a specific reason, and it's all to do with the processional cycle, the zodiac. Uh, how every couple of thousand years, each era on Earth uh, has an overarching principle. And as much as I decry the loss of sacred sites and the commercialization and the Disney vacation of sacred sites, uh, there is a reason why this, they are slowly falling apart and they serve their purpose well. Uh, and the fact that, you know, even Jesus talked about this, that, you know, the temple is actually resides inside you. So it's funny that you should say this, that yes, we are discovering that there is an inner temple going on, uh, or as I call it, the invisible temple, uh, because uh, we look at the uh, these material uh, places that we travel to uh, in Angkor and uh, in Giza and so forth. Uh, but eventually, you don't really have to go very far to find that connection. And I believe people are beginning to realize that formal religion is hollow. It's been so hijacked either by uh, dogma or extremists that it makes no sense to me in my daily life. So why should I follow this? I might as well just take time off in the woods and go and meditate. And you're doing exactly what the ancient people, the very, very ancient people used to do before they even built temples. Uh, they only built temples uh, basically as a, uh, as a remedy when people had actually lost the plot. In fact, it reminds me of a great joke that's actually written on the temple of Edfu. Uh, it says, uh, uh, "Until uh, we will keep building temples until people realize they are the temple. So if people still hadn't got it, they'll put up more temples. <laughs> so it was a bit of a joke there that was <laughs> going on. <laughs> and uh, so, yes, I believe that we have come around to our specific, this specific era where things are falling apart into chaos, but we're also experiencing huge amount of chaos in order to jump to a new level of order. And that's something that any physicist would understand. Um, uh, the whole universe is based on order and chaos, and the change from one to the other and the level of change from one to the other defines the potential to, to that new level of, of uh, change. So the more uh, chaos there is right now in the world, the bigger the potential to, uh, jump to a new level of order. Uh, we just have to ride this uh, elegantly. Uh, we are here for a reason. We have chosen to be here. Uh, when you think about it, 
this is the first time in uh, recorded history, uh, and as far as anyone knows, that more souls have been born on the, on, on the earth at this time than at any other period in life. Uh, think about that for a second. There's obviously a momentous occasion taking place here. Uh, everybody wants to be part of this enormous uh, circus, uh, this enormous play. And uh, so there's more than idle conjecture that uh, it is an important part of history that is, that is happening right now. And some of us are here to facilitate it, some of us are here to be martyrs for it, and some of us are here to be observers. And all of us are playing the right uh, part. Uh, and so that's the one thing that I always tell people who think that you, know, you can't cope with all of this change and it's beyond me to change. No, you just play your part. You, you tend your garden and show other people that this is the garden I'm going to create. And if other people want to copy you, fantastic. And that's the best you can do. You can only uh, change as much as you are capable of and uh, comfortable of doing within your own sphere of influence. So let someone else worry about the next bit because there will be someone else to take care of that. And I think if we look at our own lives that we can put up with minor discomforts and it's a bit like the frog in the pot. If you turn up the heat slowly, it'll stay in and get cooked. But <laughs> if you... <laughs> If you um, have the kind of dislocation and disruption and, and um, uh, murders and, and bombings and you know pervasive uh, things on the media that you absolutely cannot hide your eyes from, then you internalize this discomfort and you become much more open to alternatives for change than you would otherwise be. Yeah, and I think also it's worth bearing in mind that uh, we're all here to have an experience, and all our experiences are all different. Some people come here to experience pain. Some have come here to experience becoming millionaires, and uh, it's your experience mm. that counts. That's the valid thing. So don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Just follow your line, do the best you can, and try and be an example. Uh, that's what Gandhi yes, said. Indeed. He had it right. <laughs> well, oh my goodness, it's going so fast. We'll be right back with Freddie Silva. Freddie, do you believe that there is a kind of fundamental struggle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness going on now? Oh, it's always going on. <laughs> it's yes, nothing new. I mean, particularly uh, fact, now. <laughs> uh, no, I just think that uh, it's uh, perennial. Uh, I've, in fact, if you just take, for example, just uh, the last week uh, where we get so much bad news uh, coming from Europe of, you know, some very misguided people just going out uh, mindlessly killing innocent civilians, uh, we seem to think that there's something really quite horrible going on. Uh, yes, there is. But at the same time, if you compare it to, say, the Middle Ages, we're living in paradise right now. Uh, and back then, entire countries would be, uh, armies would be marching, marching through your house every week. Um, you would know what, what was what. And on top of that, you had the Inquisition coming over to knock on your door every couple of hours, stealing your wife and murdering your children. Uh, you know, uh, people of, of color were hung upside down, hung, drawn, and quartered. Uh, if you weren't uh, anything except a, a straight male, uh, the same thing would happen to you. So I think we're actually living in fairly uh, comparatively quiet times. Um, it's just that, that we have so much more access to the media and we have so much more that's uh, shoved in front of us that it makes you feel like it's an intolerable situation. Um, you know, not, not to take, uh, make light of it because you know, th these events are uh, not good. But I think that there's always a struggle going on. 
the one thing that is accentuating uh, at this particular point in time is the fact that we are in the middle of a change of age. And uh, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the uh, precessional cycle of the Earth, that every 4,320 years we do experience a specific cycle which brings with it certain qualities. And that's why you come here at this particular time is to experience these qualities. Um, so the reason why it feels a little bit more ratcheted up right now is because we literally are crossing from one threshold into the next. You know, and when you get that sort of uh, crossing over, you do get a thinning of the veil. You do get all kinds of possibilities opening up. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that um, I was privy to uh, when I was working with uh, my channeling group in England uh, is that... Um, the, uh, and this, I think, affects everybody that's ever gone to a psychic or has had a reading done, uh, because sometimes things don't quite um, come out the way that uh, they were actually given to you. Uh, there were premonitions, there were predictions, and somehow they've changed. Well, um, our, our least listeners would be happy to know, at least I hope they will be, that uh, the everything that we're doing down here, all the things that we're doing, all the intentions, uh, they're having repercussions on other levels of reality as well. So the change that we're trying to make down here is also happening on a spirit level. So there's a sort of wrangling going on. There's a sort of adaptation that's going on on multiple levels. And I think the more sensitive of us are feeling those ripples of change. And that's, and that's what I think uh, is making uh, us uh, believe that we are living in particularly dangerous and very unstable times where the dark is trying to take over. It's not really quite that black and white. It's more a, a matter of uh, shades of gray where there's a sort of a, a reinterpretation of what reality is about taking place. Uh, that's what really is happening. We're, we're sort of feeling these rough... Um, the, the rough surf on a beach that's taking place. Uh, the surf is always there. The sand is always there. The tide is, always comes in and out during the day. Always has. It's just that right now things are a little bit more uh, uneven. And as we try to figure out as humans where we stand in the bigger picture and what we want to do with the outcome uh, of these changes, so the dark is also uh, manipulating itself into position to uh, balance that, uh, uh, to balance all our intents. And also the spirit world is also balancing out the outcome. So nothing is actually written in concrete right now. Everything is in flux. Um, the good news is that there, we are very close to hitting a critical mass. And for this, to, to believe this, you'll have to stop reading the media. And having worked in the media, I can tell you it's a good thing. I mean, it, you should always keep track of the headlines. If there's an article that you, uh, obviously you're interested in, you, should, you know, check it out from the multiple sources and find out the truth. There's always uh, different versions of the truth. Uh, but, I mean, you've got to find out what the snakes are up to. You know, you can't live your life yeah. in a cave. Otherwise, you, uh, it's pointless you being here on Earth if you're going to live in a cave. You might as well be in the other world and stay there. So you're here. You're here for the good of your soul. You might as well engage with it. The trick is not to get caught away with it because if, uh, let's say, the editors of five national newspapers suddenly decided that it would not be a good idea to cover the electrical nonsense that's going on at the moment, um, we would be none the wiser as to what really was happening in, uh, in the election cycle or what was happening over in the, like Nice or the, uh, the recent killing of the bishop in France, which is very uh, unsavory. Um, they, uh, these editors would decide to put on the front page good news about um, there's a new machine that's cleaning up the environment or uh, a plane has just flown around the world uh, on um, um, using solar energy. I and mean, suddenly our uh, identity, our whole idea of what's going on around us immediately changes. So you see, 
it's tapping into all of that mainstream media uh, is good to keep yourself in track of what's going on, but don't be fooled by the fact that it's the only thing that's happening. There's so many good things happening around us, and it's, uh, our, our mind gets focused on these headlines even when other things are happening. So it would only take, say, five different types of headlines on the front page of newspapers to completely change your idea of how the world really is. So if it's that simple, if, if, if only five newspapers would, uh, are required to do that, then you can do that in your life as well by avoiding uh, all this uh, nonsense and focusing on what's important and the things that really matter in your life. Yeah, if it bleeds, it leads. But you, there has been a democratization of access to information, certainly with the Internet and with social media, which is to some extent keeping checks and balances, although certain period, uh, people whose name I won't mention have uh, <laughs> learned <laughs> to use it uh, for nefarious purposes. But um, the, the Gnostic principle is that knowledge is freedom. And I think that we are opening ourselves up uh, to accepting new knowledge in a way that we never have before. Oh, absolutely. And in this respect, it's almost like we're actually mirroring in real life what was, being, what was happening to the initiates going into the other world. They were coming back with information, knowledge mm -hmm. about the mechanics mm -hmm. of nature, of the soul and everything. And here we are now with the same access to just about anything you can think of in the world, uh, how are we going to apply it? You know, and back in the day with the, uh, the mystics and the initiates, uh, they would actually apply this. And this is the reason why it took three years to be initiated. You had to be responsible for this information. The uh, people who are teaching you, the adepts, they wanted to make sure that you were someone who was going to apply this for the greater good. Uh, so inevitably, the people who went through uh, uh, this experience, this uh, living resurrection experience, would apply this uh, on a daily level to become uh, not just exalted people, but also uh, examples, pillars of the community. They went off to be fantastic architects, uh, painters, writers, poets, leaders, kings, queens. And these are people who began to create model societies. So today we have the same potential uh, to do this uh, on a physical level. So there is a mirroring going on here of what was happening uh, a couple of thousand years ago, even up to the Greek era, by the way. Uh, and, um, and it was still being done in uh, Southern Europe and the uh, Middle Ages with the Knights Templar. And here we are, the same mm -hmm. potential now to have access to all the information. The trick is how are you going to apply that information and uh, are you going to be a better person at the end of the day? Are you going to try and create uh, a better world around you? Uh, yes, I think that there are plenty of examples of uh, people all over the, uh, the Internet and in real life where they are applying the, these, um, this information to create a better life. There was just one uh, I read recently, that I think it was an Italian designer, who created this uh, fabulous little uh, simple device, absolutely simple device, uh, elegant too, uh, where you can erect this in about an hour in the middle of a village in the middle of Africa, and it actually creates water out of thin air simply by convection. So local villagers now have access to uh, fresh water that literally uh, comes off the air. And it's the, the, the idea is about, about convection, where you take hot air in the evening, the uh, sun goes down in the night, it gets cold, so basically it condenses moisture onto a plate, and in the morning uh, your bottle is filled with fresh water. It's that simple. It really is that simple. Wow. So wow. there are people making a huge difference, and there are also people making uh, not such a good difference, but that's the way it is down here on Earth. It's always been this way. Uh, Earth is a place where we come to 
to play and experiment. Um, I usually call it the big sandbox of the universe. You know, and there are people <laughs> who come here to build sandcastles and there are people who come here to knock it down. But you know what? If there weren't people building sandcastles, this place would be a terrible mess. Uh, and I think it's worth pointing that out because, like I said, we've come here to experience things. And um, sometimes when we lost track of the, what we here, come here to do, that's when we need to go back to the process of initiation to go, to go uh, leave the body for a little bit, go out of body in a conscious state, come back and find out, ah, oh, yes, that's what the plan is about. I'm back with the plan. And if, and if you don't mm -hmm. have a, a method of uh, you know, leaving the body uh, successfully and coming back, and I, I, I sort of, and I phrased that correctly, coming back successfully because people do <laughs> do stupid things in, in places like the Great Pyramid and people do die there thinking that they're going to have an out-of-body experience. And yes, they do, but they don't know how to get back. And before you know it, the mm -hmm. pyramid is shut down for another three months. Um, so you've you got to know what you're doing. Uh, people who, know, who do Kriya Yoga understand this process where they have a very similar idea of, uh, of the resurrection idea because they have total control of their out-of-body state. Uh, that's the closest I can, example I can find to people who don't have to lie in a sarcophagus or a, a deep cave in order to have that experience. Uh, people who did Kriya Yoga in a traditional sense apparently were able to do so consciously. So there are all these techniques available to us. But again, it's, uh, you've got to remember that you are here to have an experience, and if you have access to, this inf uh, to good information, then apply it and make the place a, good, uh, a better place than it was uh, before you leave. Well, from your lips to the ears of all our listeners and their hearts as well. Thank you, Freddie. Um, you're well, you. going to be taking a tour to Peru, I understand. We oh, have about we're going everywhere. 15 seconds really, to tell us about I'm, it. I'm okay. very excited to take a nice look. We have a few places left for the October tour of Peru. It's going to be great fun. Uh, you'll have to be fit, by the way. We're <laughs> uh, uh -huh. going to go to Yucatan and Guatemala in uh, uh, January, and then England, Scotland next year, and uh, maybe a couple of other places wow. as soon as I can figure and out where you to can go. Find, <laughs> and you can find out all about it, presumably on Freddie's website, invisibletemple.com. Well, The Lost Art of Resurrection, you heard all about it here. Thank you, Freddie Silva. Thank you, Miriam. Appreciate it. I'm Miriam Knight. Do join us next week. In the meantime, visit our website, ncreview.com. Many blessings. Goodbye.